0: The rest, I would encourage, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass." Our Father in heaven, we again turn our attention to you. Thank you that we are given the privilege so often during a service to look to you, our God and our King. We look to you now, O God, as uh, your needy children, asking you to give to us wisdom, asking for you to give to us insight, asking for you to give us a vision of yourself. We pray that you would open up our hearts to receive this message and build within us a greater appreciation of the beauty of your church, which is a recognition of the finished work of you. We pray for our children in children's worship and plead with you, Lord. Give them a vision of the salvation which is offered in your Son and bring them to yourself. And would you do all this for Jesus' sake? Amen. Some beauties just make you stop and take notice, right? I don't know if it's happened to you and your family As you're driving down the road and one of the members of the family, you're in the middle of a conversation and someone looks out and they see a rainbow. And I don't know, we, we've specifically said in our family you have permission to interrupt at that point, right? And it doesn't matter what you're... Even if you're talking about where are we going for lunch, which is such an important discussion, that can be interrupted with rainbow because it's a beauty that requires... We've got to pay attention to this, right? we got to look. I mean, look at this. I mean, it's, it's a rainbow. It's fan- Even though we see them all the time, but it's beautiful. And, and so we... We, we want to stop and, and look at that. One, one such beauty uh, is the, the Grand Canyon. Right, Burks? <laughs> they, they can testify uh, as, as to the beauty of that. Um, I remember my first uh, time that I went to the Grand Canyon. Um, I've, I've always heard, you know, oh, it made my knees weak. And I didn't know what it meant until I went to the Grand Canyon, and I expected to see, oh, well, it's, it's pretty, it's going to be beautiful, no, no big deal. It was a big deal. It was a seriously big deal. And uh, I had to sit down because it was so so amazing. Um, I went to uh, Quora and I wrote down a couple uh, answers to the question, what's your first impression of the Grand Canyon? And here's just a, a few. Uh, one man named Michael said, after seeing the Grand Canyon, I now truly understand the meaning of the word Breathtaking. When I first walked into view of the canyon, I just stopped and stared in wonder. After about 45 seconds, I belatedly realized that I was so transfixed by the sight before me that I hadn't actually taken a breath. My next thought was that I should probably get my diaphragm moving again before I passed out. So for me, at least, the canyon was literally breathtaking. Mallory says, The Grand Canyon is my favorite place in the world because it is so beautiful and vast. It's hard to believe something can be so gorgeous. And finally, Roderick says, Breathtaking, ginormous. Is that really a word? I don't know. It is. Okay, well, there we go. Uh, the judge said so. Uh, unfathomable, wow. That's, that's uh, great. Uh, one of the preachers in Malawi one time said, wow. And the, the students, what does that mean? And he had to define wow. Picture the Grand Canyon to help use every superlative you know, combine them, use its exponent, and it's still more. And those who've seen it would say, yeah, yeah, that's accurate. It doesn't accurately describe, but it tells you something of the beauty that you see in such a, a, a place as, as God has made. And we find ourselves pressed to the limit of human language to describe the beauty that we see. I think an experience like that is what John is facing in Revelation chapter 21 as he gets a picture of the New Jerusalem. But remember that the angel who shows him the New Jerusalem told him, hey, John, how would you like like to see the bride of the Lamb? And then he showed him the New Jerusalem. And by that, we understand the New Jerusalem is the church, right? which is the Bride of Christ. And so we begin to see that as we're looking at the New Jerusalem, we're getting a picture of the church. And so what's happening at this moment is John is trying to describe to us the overwhelming beauty of the church. And so he's not giving specific absolute uh, descriptions, but he's giving us a a picture of, Like, I don't know if the very definition of ginormous is the the Grand Canyon, but but we all kind of get an idea of the Grand Canyon by utilizing that word, and that's precisely what he was doing. And what he wanted to do is to have us stop and appreciate the beauty of the church. Remember, he's writing to the persecuted church at this time, And he's wanting to give them comfort. He gives them this picture of heaven. And in this picture of heaven, he wants them to just, okay, all this is hard that's going on around us, but you can stop now and just appreciate the beauty of the church. And that's the invitation to us. And the first aspect of the beauty of the church that we should see is that she's designed by God in verses 15 through 17. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements, by the way, I have no idea why he threw that in there, but we'll just uh, go with that. It's, it's good to know that, that uh, it, 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 uh, which I don't know if that means, does that mean that then they don't use the metric system? You know, that's what I'm going to take from that, and that's as far as I can go. So anyway, but we have this, this picture, and we think about God designing the church, God designing the city. And I want to think about some some homes that we're we're comfortable with and we know about uh, being designed, and one that Robin and I've wanted to go to is I've been reading through uh, biographies of all of our early presidents. Um, I've wanted to go see Mount Vernon. Um, some of you have probably seen Mount Vernon, right? And, and I would like to go see it. I think it would be really cool because we know Mount Vernon is famous because that was where George Washington lived. What we often forget is that George Washington was also the architect who designed Mount Vernon, and that makes me want to see it even more. I think that's just, just really cool. And the other home of uh, early president uh, was Thomas Jefferson's home of Monticello, and we recognize that he also lived there but also designed it. Now, I don't know if anybody here has been to Falling Water. Yeah? Okay, and we all know who designed Falling Water is Frank Lloyd Wright. And we all know who lived there. Uh, yeah. So, um, the Kaufmans, Right? We, of course, the Kauffmans. We, we knew that, right? But we don't think about the resident of that beautiful designed home, and, and volley Water, for those who haven't been there, is just fantastic. It's in, in western Pennsylvania. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was asked by the Kaufmans to build this home for them, and uh, I think at first it was kind of a, a summer weekend getaway, and uh, they had this property, and they had this beautiful waterfall, and they said, well, we think you should put it down here at the bottom of the waterfall, and as Frank Lloyd Wright apparently was uh, so willing to do whatever his uh, customers wanted at any time, he said, no. He said, I'm going to build it on the waterfall. He said, that's where it belongs. That's what's prominent. And then he actually utilizes the waterfall as helping to cool the building by being able to open up the, the there's a glass kind of window thing at the bottom where the river kind of goes underneath and it's able to then come up and, and cool the home. It's just a beautiful, beautiful home. If you haven't been there, it's, it's really worth going to. But what I'm struck by is, we, we know the, the, the architect and resident of uh, Mount Vernon and of Monticello. We know the architect of uh, Fallingwater we know the architect and resident of the New Jerusalem too, don't we? They're both God Almighty because the beauty of the church is that God dwells with us. And so he is the architect and he's the resident of the church, which gives it its magnificent beauty. Let's, let's look at the design so that we can better appreciate the beauty. The design, first, the church is massive. It's massive. I remember our first trip to uh, Paris, um, Robert and I were standing on uh, Pont Neuf, and uh, uh, I was taking a picture of her. And As I took the picture, I kind of looked in the background. And I was like, oh, well, I got the Eiffel Tower right in the background. And, and so that was kind of cool. It was just you know, this little tower in the back. And then we went, I think, the next day to the Eiffel Tower, and I was really taken by how big it is. I, I, I just, I, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I guess I had the same problem with the Grand Canyon. Oh, it's really big. It's like, well, yeah, what were you thinking? But anyway, but come to realize that at the time that it was built, it was, I think, the tallest structure uh, in the world at that time. And so it was just massive, and I was taken aback by how massive. But then I look at the description of the New Jerusalem, and he says that it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, Right? That's where he begins to drive to us, 1,500 miles. Think about this. The size of that means if one corner is up in Bangor, Maine, then the next corner would be down in Orlando, Florida, which would then stretch across to Pecos, Texas, which is right on the border of New Mexico, and then go up to Grand Grand Forks, North Dakota, This is the entirety of the eastern part of our nation plus the plain states thrown in for nothing, right? It's just huge to begin to think of just this size that he's he's trying to convey to us. And then he says then it's that same height, height, that same height. That's 272 times higher than Everest. It's six times higher than the orbit of the International Space Station. Holy Moses, it's huge. Now, is he giving us very specific, precise measurements in this? You know, that's not the point. What's, what's he getting at by describing it as so massive? What he's trying to help us understand is it's huge, but why do we need to know it's huge? Isn't it primarily that the, the bigness of a city, if there's only one person in it, it's not nearly as impressive, Right? The bigness of the city is fantastic because it, it, it talks about how many people it contains. This is going to be this massive place for the people of God. This is the church. It's huge. And why does that matter? Because God gets more than the devil? Goodness, no. I believe the massive nature of the New Jerusalem reminds us of the massive nature of the mercy of God. Dr. Morton Smith said in class one time, it was one of the first classes I took with him, and uh, we were talking about something else, and he just made the comment, he said, I believe that it is impossible for me in heaven to be surprised that God's mercy is less than I expect. I really like that. And the way that he put it is God's grace and mercy is far greater than I can imagine. It's far more. And I think that's what John is conveying to us in this picture of the 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile church of Jesus Christ. That we would see the mercy of God. Because you see, every resident of the new Jerusalem was a sinner, an enemy of God, a person opposed to God's rule in their life, and yet God had forgiven them. Every person in heaven will be redeemed by the grace of God. That it is His grace which will have taken them out of darkness and brought them into light. That will have taken them out of deadness and given them life. That would have taken them who are enemies of God and brought them in to be the beloved bride of Christ. Every single one of the residents of that 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, this is true. Of every single resident will be adopted by God as His beloved child. Every single resident in this massive church is deeply beloved by God and is precious to Him. That's mercy, isn't it? That's magnificent mercy. That's massive mercy. The church is not only massive, it is also complete. One of the sites Robin and I visited when we were in seminary in Colorado was a place called Bishop's Castle. It's outside of Rye, Colorado was just really out in the middle and and nowhere in the mountains of of Colorado. And it's kind of cool. About 60 years ago, uh, the um, individual who built it um, bought the land. I think he was still a teenager. And he said, well, I'm going to build my own house. And I'm going to use stones from right around here. So he started taking the stones and began to build a house. And friends would come over and they'd say, oh, that's really cool. It kind of looks like a castle. Said, I got an idea. And so he began to build a castle, and he's just been building it. I think it's three stories now. It's even got a, a big dragon head off of one end, and it's kind of cool to, to go and to see. And the one thing you're aware of, though, and is is it's not quite complete. Right? He hasn't quite finished it. He's not sure if he's going to be able to actually finish it himself, but but it's not quite it's not done. And you can also see that, well, the design. The design kind of evolved through the years. You know, it, 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 it had some changes here and there, and it's neat. It's just kind of neat. But when I see the picture of heaven coming down as this perfect cube, it speaks to me that it's complete. And I'm reminded when we were in Arizona that there was a a, a church, uh, that there was a, a builder in town who had done a, a, a lot of building and and he found this spot. He said, this is a great spot. The, the city, the community is growing in this direction. And, and he had a friend who used to be a pastor of one of the largest churches in the area. And he said, hey, will you pastor a church if I build it? The most interesting church planting model I've ever seen. And so they, they gathered a bunch of community leaders together around the, at the plot. And they did the, the groundbreaking. And their theme was, you guessed it, if we build it, they will come. And so they built this, this uh, church building, and his idea was, but I want control of how the building is built. He says, so often when, when people build a, a building, they're not looking for efficiency. I want this to be a cube, he said, because that's the most efficient utilization of space in a building. That's going to be the best way to do it. And so they built it in a cube. And actually, I was surprised when they got done, because it was, it was prettier than I thought. And on their first Sunday, which is on an Easter Sunday, they had 1,500 people show up. Really? How do you do this? This is, this is crazy stuff. Well, you hire a guy who was a pastor of the largest church in the area to start it. That helps, and, and so that was beneficial. Uh, but they preached the gospel, and I praise God for that. But, but it was interesting that, that to them, the, the completed church was a cube, and the completed church, in God's perspective, is this cube. The church is this cube. It's complete. Going back to our time in Arizona, my first year of ministry there, Um, I was doing an internship, and I uh, was licensed, but I couldn't serve communion, so once a month we'd have a a pastor come in and preach for us, and one one time we had a pastor, Jerry, come in, and uh, Jerry was preaching for me, and and I, I really appreciated his message, and you'll know Jerry Heights. And uh, Jerry was speaking, and, and uh, it was a small congregation at that time. I think there were 17 people on my first Sunday. Uh, there were probably somewhere in the, maybe, maybe 30, 25, somewhere in there, about the time that Jerry showed up. We'd, we'd had massive growth. Um, but anyway, uh, as, as Jerry was preaching, he was preaching about uh, spiritual gifts. And he was preaching about them not just as individual gifts, but as the way that God gifts his church. He says, we're a body. And he says, and God doesn't have deformed bodies. He doesn't have bodies that don't have all that they need. And so us, even as this little bitty congregation, it was incredibly encouraging to say, so we have all the gifts that we need right now for who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that felt really good. And then when I look at the, 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 the church universal, I begin to see, oh yeah, we've, we've definitely got all the gifts that we need there. But then to recognize that he does that also on a, on a smaller level within our body that we have all that we need. There's no missing parts. Do you see the beauty of God's design? It's complete. And even here, that each person in each place at each time is a part of that completion of the church. It doesn't mean everybody stays forever. It doesn't mean that nobody ever comes in, but God moves it constantly, getting the church to be exactly what He wants, in order for that church to reach the world for him. The church is complete. There's a beauty in God's design of His church, isn't it? There's also a beauty in seeing that the church is rare. The church is rare. You notice no, no man gives his lovely bride-to-be an engagement ring with a single grain of sand mounted just nicely on it, right? Now, I, I gave my wife a, a, a ring with a diamond on it, and it was a really teeny tiny diamond. That way she'd never question if it was real. Of course it's a real diamond, because no one would give a fake little one, right? Right? So we got that question answered right away. But, but we don't do that with the sand. Why? Because sand is everywhere, right? It's just it's, it's common. It's just normal. Why do we, why do we cherish the diamond? Because it's rare, right? And, and the bigger it is, the more rare it is, right? And so it becomes even more precious and more valued because we recognize just how rare it is. Think about the rarity of the church. And the rarity of the church is found predominantly in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, how is the church rare? I mean, we've got uh, Providence is here just down the, the road. We've got the Seventh-day Adventist church. There's another church right next to them, and then just up the road from there is Church of the... Uh, now I can't remember. Good, Where do you work, Kelly? <laughs> Thank you. Good Shepherd. <laughs> Lutheran Church is right there. I always get the name wrong on that one. Um, but, so we've got all these churches. So what do what, what we say in the church is rare? It's everywhere, right? Well, yeah, that's the church is, but the church of Jesus Christ is what's rare. And it's rare because of its relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is described in the book of Acts, chapter 4, this way. In verse 12, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus Himself said in in John chapter 14, verse 6 that we read this morning, He said, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. So you see the rarity of Jesus that He declares He's the only way. That He alone is the way in which people can come to the Father. He's the only way of salvation. And we are the body of Christ. And that makes the church incredibly rare. It is the place where salvation is possible. As a matter of fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith begins to describe to us uh, the uh, visible church in particular in chapter 25, paragraph 2. We read the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? It's saying that salvation is found in connection to the church. Let's look at, at a couple of the unique characteristics that, that are described by John to help us understand the rarity of the church The church is precious to God. The church is precious to God. He uses this term, um, I believe, in verse 18. No, verse 19. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first stone, and he goes to list the 12 stones. Precious stones. The precious stones that make up the foundation um, David Livingston was born in uh, Blantyre, Scotland, and uh, became a, a medical doctor primarily because he found that was a way that he would be able to take the gospel to other lands. And he ended up going to Africa. And when we were in uh, Cape Town, I was taken back by remembering that it was in Cape Town that David Livingston entered into Africa. That That's where his ship landed and he began his trek into Africa. And while he was doing that, he worked for the, the British government in mapping out uh, Africa and exploring it. He also worked in opposition to the slave trade, attacking slavers and, and setting those who had been captured free. But primarily, his purpose was to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into Africa, and, and it was, it's been said that there's no better friend that Africa has ever had than David Livingston. I um, was able to speak with a, a gentleman we, we know from Malawi and asking him, you know, what is an African's perspective? Uh, a black African in particular, what's their perspective? And, and he said, oh, we love David Livingston because he fought for our continent, and he truly did, and, and a, a remarkable man. Well, David Livingston died in what is now Zambia. And after he died, his body was transported from Zambia. And if you think of this, going by uh, foot all the way back down to Cape Town and then it had to be shipped back up to uh, um, England and is now entered in in Westminster Chapel. Um, It's remarkable. It's remarkable. But you know, before they took his body, they took his heart out. And they buried his heart in Africa. Because that's where it belonged. Because Africa had truly captured his heart. Now as I think about that, and I was reading something just this last week, and it really struck me. I, I knew, I've known the story for, for a long, long time, and, and, and I love this question. Where do you want your heart buried? Hmm. That's a great thought, isn't it? You know, we think. I mean, many of you are, are are from this area, and and okay, well, we married buried here. We talk about, you know, we we grew up in Colorado, and we've lived in in some remarkable places, and and for for many years. And where do we want our hearts buried? It's 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 a key qu- question. But you see, God's heart is with His church, isn't it? In Ephesians 2.4 we read, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What led him to save us? It was his love. His heart is for his church. And that's a magnificent thought. We are precious to God. Not just as a church, but you individually are precious to God that you are that precious stone that he's picturing for us as he pictures the church. The church is also rare in that she's entrusted with the gospel. Verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. The gates are pearls. We looked at the gates a little bit last week. Matthew 7, verse 13 Tells us about gates. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That idea that the, the way in to the church is narrow. It's only through the gospel. There's no other way. It's through the gospel. And then we see later in in Matthew chapter uh, 13 that Jesus then talks about um, the pearl of great price. Do you remember that? The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl that a man sees and he sells all that he has that he might gain it. He throws off everything that he has that he might be able to enter through that pearl, enter through that gate into the church of Jesus Christ. It's not unlike the words of Jesus that he says in, in Luke chapter 14, that uh, unless we, set, we get rid of all of our possessions, that is to say, unless we just forget, they're, they're just nothing. We leave them behind. It's all Jesus Christ. This is the pearl and the gate that's pictured for us at this place in, 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 in Revelation that he wants to uh, enlarge our vision to see the beauty of that. When we talk about the church, we have to talk about the church in two different ways. One of the ways is we talk about the visible church, and that is the, the, the church here on earth. We talk about the invisible church, which is the church universal, and it's, it's the church, church all over. And we use the definition, and we saw that earlier. The visible church is made up of all those who profess faith in Christ along with their children. It's the people who are gathering together for worship. That's who is the visible church. Now, how does a person come into that visible church? Well, some come, like myself, from outside, that they're raised not in the church, and they come to faith, and they make a public profession of faith, and they enter into the church, and now they're a part of the visible church, right? Now, making a public profession of faith, does that guarantee the person is saved? It doesn't, right? A person can make a public profession of faith and still be unsaved, so they can be in the visible church and not actually have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? Right? By the same token, our children are given the, the, the sacrament of baptism because God has brought them into the confines of the church. It's God's action who have brought them into this place so they are a part of the church, and we give them that sign and seal as a demonstration that they are a part of this church. But are they all saved? No. What has to happen for each individual? They have to personally believe in Jesus Christ, Right? They have to personally trust that Jesus has died for their sins. And the reality is within the church, there can always be people who are not yet converted, correct? There can be those who have thought maybe that they were. And they've kind of lived their life and they think that they're all okay, but they've never actually come to a place where they realize, I've sinned against God and I need His forgiveness. There are even those who can be officers within the church or pastors within the church who have yet to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's why I try with virtually every sermon as I can to invite you to ask yourself, am I trusting in Jesus? And then to invite you, will you put your trust in Him today? To believe. Because it is only through that gate, it is only through that pearl that we enter into the invisible church and we find that salvation is we believe. Will you believe? the church is precious to god the church is entrusted with the gospel and the final aspect of the rarity of the church is that god purifies his church twice in these verses once in verse 18 he speaks of pure gold he says the city was pure gold like clear glass and verse 21 ends with and the city was the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass gold That is so pure it's clear. To our minds, the goldness of the gold is what makes gold, gold, right? I mean, clear gold doesn't seem to click for us. But in God's mind, his idea of of gold and his picture of what pure gold is, the absolute removal of everything that isn't absolutely the very essence of gold, leaves it clear. What a remarkable picture that is. To think of gold that is that pure, that has everything else removed, and it stands in all of its purity. And that's God's commitment to the church. It's a commitment we read about in First Peter chapter one, verses three through seven, and, and, and three through six are really just kind of giving us the flow, because it's such a beautiful passage that uh, Peter gives to us. Um, but verse seven is where we're going to land and think about. He says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." Amen." To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not, be fa- will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That he purifies our faith. And that God is committed to that. That the trials in our life are intended by God to purify our faith. Is it conceivable that even COVID is intended by God to purify our faith? And I can see it in several different ways. It isn't to purify our faith that says, oh, I can run headlong into a room filled with COVID patients and not be afraid. Well, yeah, I don't need to be afraid, but that's not the kind of faith that we're talking about, right? We're talking about the faith that God is good even in the midst of this. I've been sharing with the officers and encouraging them to think about, and, and I'm thinking about, what if COVID doesn't go away? Isn't that We've kind of been focused on that, haven't we? Well, from the very beginning, well, it'll go away. I remember we postponed a trip to Africa for two months. Boy, does that seem silly today, <laughs> right? What if it isn't going to go away? What if it's What if it's here? Can we still believe in God? Can we still serve him? Is it actually conceivable that we could actually worship God wearing a mask? I, I, I think that could happen. I don't think masks are actually one of the, the marks of a true church, nor one of the means of grace, is it? Mask or not mask. It isn't that. It's something else, isn't it? And what if we, 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 we have to deal with that? What it means then is we're going to seek to expand the church in an environment in which there is a highly contagious, potentially deadly disease around us. Oh, we can do that, can't we? Yeah, yeah, I got ideas. I'm asking the officers to come up with ideas. You got ideas. What if we do that? What if God is just bringing this in to say, hey, it's not your ease in America and the great health that I've given you that is going to allow my church to grow. What if God is giving it to us because he wants us to see, no, it is me who is going to bring the church to grow. I'm the one who said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And what if that's what God is doing, is purifying our faith, taking away from us everything that isn't faith in God. Because if we're honest about our faith, we have faith in a lot of things other than God, don't we? It's really easy to trust my insurance company more than God, right? It's really easy to trust my house. The fact is, it's really easy to trust me. I know you wouldn't understand, but I find it very easy to trust me. I have a tremendous amount of confidence in me. I probably have too much confidence in me. And so I believe a part of the purifying work of God is he's taking away this false God who thinks he's got it. And he's leaving me to only trust in him. In purifying our faith, he's going to take away all of our trust in family. We love our family. My family's wonderful. But they can't save my soul. One day I will die and I will close my eyes to them and none of them will be with me. And I will stand before God alone and my faith will be ultimately completely purified, even of my faith in my family, even my faith in my church. As great a church as we serve, this church cannot save you. It's incapable of doing that. And so God wants to take away from us that, that trust. And it's very easy for a child to grow up and to see that their family has said the church is where the truth is, the church is where the word of God is, the truth is where the gospel is. And for the children to grow up and to say, well, I'm going to trust the church and I'm going to stay a part of the church because being a part of the church is going to get me saved and yet it can't do that. And so God will even purify us from that, right? All these other false gods that may come up inside our hearts, God is going to purify like pure gold that is like clear glass. And even the trust in our nation. I love being a part of America. I've been to a lot of other countries. And I'm so thankful that this is the nation where God has caused me to grow up, where my citizenship is. There are tremendous blessings from being a part of that. And yet again, this nation cannot save my soul this nation is not my home. That's why we've had this theme all year long of heading home, because it ain't here. I'm looking for the new Jerusalem. I'm looking for where my home will be forever, and God is purifying me even from a trust for my nation. I love the words of Rich Mullins. He says, I thank God for Richard Nixon. Because he kind of makes me quit in my government. <laughs> it's like, amen. Amen. And you notice I went with Richard Nixon back in the 70s because it's much safer for me. <laughs> but I thank God for that because of the reality that our nations are impure, right? And imperfect and incapable of saving my soul. But God is not. And He is determined to work inside us that purity of heart that He blesses by saying, blessed are the pure in heart, that they shall see God And I want to run headlong into what he has so that I might pray with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but thee? In heaven, nothing but God. And on earth, nothing I desire besides thee. That it is solely God that my faith is so purified that everything else is gone and it is like gold that is clear glass so that I can also pray with a psalmist, Psalm 16, verse 2. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. What makes something beautiful? When I think about the Grand Canyon, what makes it beautiful? First is its vastness. That's, that's the first thing that makes it beautiful. Second are the, the colors. The colors. Uh, it's just so many different, magnificent, beautiful, bright colors. And, uh, and the diversity. Even the diversity of climate. You know, you have a totally different climate, if you will, at the top than you do down at the bottom. Because you've got uh, over 5,000 feet between them in elevation. When I think about Cape Town. Um, we just got back from Cape Town and... Um, I've got probably maybe two or three more weeks of Cape Town illustrations until next time we go. But anyway, um, we grew up in Colorado Springs, and all our life we've said that Colorado Springs is the most beautiful place, the most natural beauty of any city we've ever been in. Just, just simple. And then we went to Cape Town, and I can no longer say that of, of the place where I grew up, that Cape Town is truly the most beautiful. And what's beautiful there is the diversity, uh, not the diversity, the variety. You've got these, these steep cliffs right over this sandy beach and then the vast ocean. It's, it's just amazing. And it's the steep cliff, and then you get this table mesa that goes across. It's, it's just really remarkable and beautiful. And in Pennsylvania, I'm sorry if I said that wrong. When we heard we were coming here, we talked about Pennsylvania? We've been in Colorado. We've been in Wyoming. We've been in Arizona. We've been in Flo- Pennsylvania? And then we got here and we said, oh my, Pennsylvania, it is gorgeous. It is so amazingly beautiful. With, with the, the, the rolling hills and mountains that are so brightly green and they're, I'm sorry, we lived in Colorado, they're cute here. But anyway, but, but to see the, the beauty of, of the mountains and the hills and how green, and they're still green, Right? I remember I, I sold paint in Fort Collins, Colorado and Colorado State University's football program came down to our paint store because they had a nationally televised game that was going on, I think it was in November, only the grass is all brown. And so they bought green paint from us for the nationally televised TV. The things on TV aren't always what you think they are. And they painted the, the, the ground and I was, thought it was great, we got to sell on the paint, I got to color match grass, it was cool. It's just kind of a, a special gift that God gave me. But here, our grass is still green. We were walking around with, with Robin and Maman. She said, your grass is still green. It's like, yeah, isn't it cool? It kind of stays that way. And it's a wonderful thing that God has given and a beauty to this place. That's wonderful, isn't it? The beauty of the church is what John wants us to appreciate. To look at the beauty of the church and to really just stop and appreciate it. He's writing this to persecuted Christians who are really discouraged, and he wants them to just stop. Look at the church. Appreciate its beauty. Appreciate that she's designed by God and appreciate that she is truly rare. Let's pray. Father, I just want to begin with a, a personal plea from my own heart. I want very much to see the beauty of your church. I know my own heart, Lord. It's so easy to focus on the imperfections of the church, to 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 see the failures of the church. Give me the eyes that John was given. Give us the eyes that John was given. Grant, O God, that we may see the beauty of your church. That we may see the beauty of the finished work of Jesus. That we may see the beauty of the reason that Jesus was born a baby in Bethlehem. That he might create a beautiful church, a beautiful bride. And would you do this for His namesake? Amen.